before we jump into our sermon today, wanted to give just a, a little brief update on our building. There we go. So today at 2 o'clock, we're going to be going over out into the community uh, to do surveys. But before that, I want to encourage anyone who's available to come and to uh, take a few moments uh, to write some scriptures inside the post. We did this when we built our house. I think it's a neat opportunity uh, for us as a church body uh, to write some prayers and some requests of the Lord uh, on, this, on the post um, before, they do the, uh, before they do the drywall and do the painting. Uh, you can write uh, whatever is biblical on there. want to emphasize biblical. Uh, if you can't make it uh, today, uh, right before 2 o'clock, uh, the building should be open um, or the post should be open and available for the next week. Um, but hopefully by the end of this week, they'll do the, uh, do the um, drywall and the opportunity will close. So I want to encourage you to do that if you can today. Uh, 2 o'clock, we're going to be out in the community uh, doing surveys. It's an opportunity for us to be good neighbors, and it's an opportunity for us to meet folks who are not connected to our church. Uh, the, the purpose of the survey is not to preach at people, uh, but the purpose of the survey is to get um, to, to begin building relationships with people who are not connected to our church. Um, our attitude and our mindset is we want to go into the neighborhoods and figure out how we can serve the community before we just go in uh, with this idea of we are coming in to quote unquote to save the neighborhood. We don't want that to be the mindset. So we have a very, um, very brief survey with about five questions on it. We, what we'll do is we'll get there um, at two, we'll pray together, then we'll break up into groups and go out together. Amen? Uh, this morning, I also want to say that uh, what a tremendous time we had yesterday at our men's fellowship. I want to encourage you that this will take place every first Saturday of the month um, at 9 o'clock. Um, it'll be here on, um, on next month, which is June, but hopefully by July, I'm uh, speaking in faith, hopefully by July we'll be at the new location, but if not, we'll continue to be here. But um, Saturday morning is an opportunity for the men of the church uh, to come together, uh, to be challenged, to be encouraged, and to be strengthened in God's word. So if you can make it, um, I want to encourage you to go ahead and put that on your calendar. That'll take place every single um, first Saturday of the month. This morning, uh, since we finished our series in Joshua on last Sunday, I wanted to um, preach a passage of scripture that's very familiar to us. So I want us together um, to study uh, the first chapter of Romans. I want to read Romans chapter number 1, verses 1 through 17. Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. It's a familiar passage, but I pray that the Lord will give us fresh eyes to see and hear what he has to say to us this morning. And let me know you have it by saying amen. Verse number one declares, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring out the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 
grace to you and peace from our God, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing uh, I mentioned you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager uh, to preach the gospel to you also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I want to preach uh, from the subject title, A Ministry That Moves. A Ministry That Moves. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for blessing me with this opportunity to get into your word. God, I thank you that any time you give us an opportunity to open up the scriptures, it is an opportunity for us to take a divine trip from where we are today to where we're taken forth in the text. God, I pray that you would help us see that the words that were written thousands of years ago were written for our good and for our transformation. God, help us to see exactly what you're calling us to see. God, help us to move past what we may have thought this passage is communicating. And God, help us to see exactly what it, how we can apply this passage in our personal lives, but also in the life of our church. God, thank you for blessing me, and God, thank you for allowing me this privilege to share uh, in your name. It's in Christ's name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Uh, when I arrived at Beeson Divinity School, uh, the Lord not only blessed me with a great education, but the Lord blessed me with a great new brother in the Lord. Uh, the brother in the Lord that I'm specifically mentioning is a brother by the name of Thomas Beavers. Uh, Thomas actually uh, attended uh, Kentucky State University, and I actually attended Morehouse College. For those of you guys who don't know, uh, Kentucky State and Morehouse are actually rival schools. But when we got to Divinity School, we were immediately blessed by each other's friendship. T. Beavers has served as my accountability partner for the past 15 plus years. We talk several times weekly. Uh, we are both pastors and we often share uh, victories and struggles in our personal lives and we also share prayer requests for our churches. While we were talking this past week, T. Beavers mentioned uh, that the credit union at his church is looking for a new director. Uh, the previous director actually retired, and so they are now accepting applications for the new position. And this week, he received an application from an applicant uh, that totally shocked and surprised him. Uh, he was online, and he got a submission for the job, and he saw that a local bank executive made the decision to fill out the request for the position. He was shocked because this person was very successful 
at a very well-known bank, uh, making a tremendous salary, and they were in a position where, in his mind, they would never consider working at a local church. Uh, he was so shocked by the person's uh, desire uh, to come on staff, he actually called the person, and he asked them, are you sure you are applying for the right position? She said, yes, I am. He said, are you, are you aware that we are a very small credit union with a very small staff? She says, I'm aware. He says, he asked her questions about how much she was currently making, and he told her very quickly uh, to come on staff at the church meant that she would be taking a significant uh, pay reduction. And she says, that's not a problem. He was so floored by her desire to come on staff that he actually asked her a question. He said, what in the world would lead you to want to work at this church? And she quickly responded, I really believe that the Lord is calling me to use my gifts and my talents in the world of banking to make an impact on his kingdom. What she was essentially communicating is she felt a call to be in a different place in her life. What would allow a bank executive to desire to be on staff at a church? I believe it was a call from God. Only a calling from God would allow someone to go to a smaller, uh, to a smaller uh, company, uh, would, would allow someone uh, to, to take a less prestigious position, would allow someone uh, to take a pay cut. It would, it would only be a calling that would allow that person to do that. One of my favorite preachers always says that a call from God is a call that must be answered because when God calls, he only calls us to significant and impactful things in our lives. Now, this is the idea that we go into with the first chapter of the book of Romans. The apostle Paul is writing an epistle because he is answering a call to move the ministry. When, when you open up the book of Romans, it is very clear that Paul felt a desire to do something different. He felt a desire uh, that God was leading him to make an impact in a certainly in a different way. Uh, he had uh, had success in the past. He had planted churches before. At this point in his ministry, he had preached uh, to, lo uh, to large audiences. At this point in his life, he had seen uh, people's lives transformed by the gospel. But now he sensed a different call and a different season in his life. I personally can identify with Paul because I can remember when the Lord um, called us to plant this church. Before planting Calvary, we certainly were fully engaged in ministry. Uh, we had a significant platform of ministry in the city. But the more I prayed and the more I studied God's word, the more I was convicted, the more I was persuaded, the more I was convinced that the Lord was calling us to plant a local church. The church that God was calling us to plant was not just going to be another church. But we believed that we could plant a church that would be a true reflection of the city we were trying to reach but we, we firmly were convicted we were firmly convinced that we could plant a gospel center and a multicultural and a multi-generational church a church that existed to give God glory and a church that exists uh, so that we can fulfill the mission of God and as you open up the book of Romans we get a glimpse of a ministry that's getting ready to move and when, you, when we read the passage, we see uh, three significant things about the move. First, we see uh, the minister who was about to move. Uh, secondly, we see the motivation for the move. And lastly, we see the miracle 
of the move. Go with me to chapter number one, verse one, and we're going to find out about the minister who was moving. Verse one says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul opens up the book of Romans by giving his credentials. Uh, so culturally, a writer would always give his name, but because there were several men uh, named Paul in that day, Paul gives his name, but Paul also gives his identity. I want to say this very clearly. Paul first identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. It's a very important word there. Paul says, above all, I am a servant of Christ. I might be a tent maker. I might travel the known world. But first and foremost, I am a servant of Christ. That's why we always need to remember, and that's why we always need to be careful not to confuse what we do with who we are. I, I serve as a pastor, but that is not who I am. I'm on staff as a chaplain, but that is not who I am. Uh, you may be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a police officer. Uh, you may be a business owner. That is what you do, but that is not who you are. If you find your identity in what you do, the question you've got to ask yourself is, what happens or what, what changes when your profession changes? If, if your identity and your focus is in what you do, what happens when, when God makes a decision to change what you are currently doing? The truth of the matter is, and I hope I'm here for a long time, but I will not always be the chaplain at UGA. I will not always be the pastor of this church. Hope I'm going to be here a long time now. I'm not going, I'm, I have no plans of going anywhere. But if my identity is in being the pastor of Calvary or the chaplain of Georgia, when I lose those titles, I can easily lose myself. So many times, we, we, we fail to place our identity in Christ. And we need to always place our identity in Christ because what you do will change. It is a fact. Where you work, where you live, the title that you currently hold right now, it is inevitable. It will change. Your location will change, and that's okay because when we are in Christ, it's okay when we change, it's okay when we move because we, are, we have got to understand whose we are in Christ. We must remember who we belong to. We must re remember that we are children of God, and regardless of what we do, in our profession, we must always know that when we have placed our faith and our trust and our hope in Christ, our identity is there first. That's okay when the job title changes. That's okay when uh, the rift happens. Uh, that's okay when the company downsizes because no matter what degree you pursue or, 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 or what profession you desire to be in, your identity in Christ never will change. Your relationship with God will never change. I'm thankful to have Melissa's parents. They're here from Canada. The fact that Melissa left Canada and came to Georgia did not change the fact that she's their daughter. She, she is uh, she's married now. She's a doctor now. Congratulations, sister. Her, her identity has not changed. Yes, we can celebrate that. 
Her, her professional title has changed, but her identity has not changed because she is in Christ. Uh, when I was studying the passage, I was immediately reminded of how Christ reminds us in Matthew 23 that, that, the, that the greatest among us will be our servants. Jesus says very clearly, he says, the greatest who live among you will be those who are willing to serve you. Not the person with the best voice, uh, not the person with a, a certain marital status, uh, not a person with a certain number of kids, not a person with a certain degree or a certain title, uh, not, not a person who has a certain office in the church. Jesus says, the greatest who live among you are those who are willing to serve you. He reminds us that greatness is not found in how many people serve you, but greatness is found in how many people you are willing to serve. In addition to saying, I am a servant, uh, Paul also reminds us that he was an apostle. The word apostle means he was one sent with authority by God. He was on a commission from the Lord. Paul says, I was not simply some self-appointed apostle. Um, Paul did not go online to get his ordination. True story. I was, uh, two weeks ago, I was in a football complex, and one of the players uh, came up to me and said, yeah, man, I got ordained this weekend. It's like, what? He's like, yeah, man, I got online. It took me like 30 minutes. It cost me like 100 bucks, but, you know, I thought it would be kind of cool. True story. Paul did not get online to get ordained. Paul was chosen by God for a specific ministry and a specific purpose. Uh, we need to be reminded of that because when life gets rough, when, when people come against us, when life doesn't work out the way we think it should or what we want it to, here's the truth. We can be reminded that we are doing what we are doing because God has called us to this. Like, like we are doing this because the Lord desires for us to do it. And if it doesn't look exactly how I want it to look, that's okay because <clears throat> God has enlisted me in his service. Sorry about that, Robert. Robert listens to the sermons and he tells me, please don't cough in the mic, but whatever. <laughs> God has enlist, enlisted us in, this, in his service. Not a man, not a pastor. But it is God who calls us. It is God who qualifies us. It is God who equips us. And ultimately, it is God who empowers us to do his will. Paul says, I'm a servant. He says, I was selected as an apostle. And lastly, he says, I am called to preach the gospel. Uh, in, in the text, the gospel is the good news. It is the good news of salvation that is only found in Jesus. It is a message that you and I are more sinful than we would like to admit, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. It is a message that Christ died for our sins in our place and how Christ went to a place that he did not deserve so that you and I can ultimately spend eternity in a place that we do not deserve. It is a message that requires a response. Those who place their faith in Christ, uh, the finished work, find life. But those who reject the finished work of Christ experience eternal separation from God. In verse 1, Paul calls it the gospel of God because it originates from God. It was not invented by a man. 
The gospel is not a new message. I love when you look at the passage, it says it was the promised message, meaning that it was a message that came uh, from, the new, from the Old Testament. It was, a, it was a message that came from even the prophets in the Old Testament. This week, I want to encourage you to spend some time reading the Old Testament. And as you read, I want you to see how Christ is even the theme, even in the Old Testament. The gospel is a promised message, but it is also a message for all people. Verse 5 says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, all nations, all nations. When we read that passage, we need to remember that the gospel is for everybody not just for the religious, not just for the church folks, not just for the males, not just for the rich, not just for the poor. The gospel message is a message for everyone. Any, any message, any so-called gospel message that preaches that one race or one people or one gender is superior or inferior of, an, uh, of another is not the true gospel. One of the greatest things about the gospel is it reminds us that regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of education, all of us have the same need, and that need is found and satisfied in Christ. That's why we preach Christ. That's why we focus on the scriptures. Even today, when you think about preaching across the country, preaching today is so personality-driven. And I love that you love me as your pastor. I'm thankful to be able to serve here and to be able to lead here. But what the world needs is not to hear from Thomas. I, I hope you don't leave here as a church quoting Thomas or saying what Thomas said. I, was, I met with a person this week, and it was amazing uh, that she quoted the minister more than she quoted the scriptures. She quoted a person more so than she quoted God. And in my in my limited experience, but my faithful experience, I've seen that those who place their faith in a person, those who put people on a pedestal, ultimately find themselves failing. Because here's the truth. We cannot satisfy the longing of your heart. So first, we see the minister. <clears throat> but then secondly, we see the motivation. Verse 14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Uh, Paul is getting ready to move his ministry toward Rome. But it is important to see that Paul is not simply focused on a geographic location. Paul is focused on people. We need to know that Paul is focused on people. He proclaims that he is thankful in verse 8 for people. He, 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 he proclaims in verse 9 that he is prayerful for people. Thank you, my brother. He lets us know in verse 15 that he is eager to share a message to people. I know this is obvious, but the church is made up of people. Christ died for the people. 
Christ did not die for the building or the music style or the geographical location. Christ came to be in relationship with people. In our text, Paul was eager to go to Rome because of the people. He was eager to go to Rome, not as a tourist, but he wanted to have relationship with people. I love the text. He says, I want to be mutually encouraged. He says, I want your faith to encourage me as I encourage you in your faith. As we make this move, we're not going to save people. We are going to mutually be encouraged in our faith. Paul had the conviction that the people needed to hear something. I want to be clear. His conviction was not that the people needed to hear him preach. So, some of us preacher types, we can get to this place where we think that the world is waiting to hear us say a word. The world is not waiting for me to preach. What, what, what Athens needs is not to hear more of Thomas Self. But what Athens needs is to hear more of the gospel. In the text, Paul is convicted that the people needed to hear a message and, and I want to go out on a statement. I want to I go, go out on a limb and make a statement here. If you, if you never come to a place in your life where you have a conviction that people need to hear the message of Christ, you will never be compelled to share the message. If you do not have a burden, have a conviction, or I'll say it this way, until you develop the conviction that people need to hear the gospel, personal evangelism will never be an option. Until you get to a place in your life where you are convinced, you are persuaded that we have something that the world is missing, that we have something that the world needs to hear. Until you get to that place, you will never move past our self-preservation. You will never move past improving your own life. When you look at the text, there is a conviction that they needed to hear about Jesus and that they needed to hear from Jesus. Paul says in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. He's communicating that he has a debt to pay, not to save himself, but he has a debt to pay because his life was called to honor God. When he says uh, to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, he's saying that I have a message for everybody. When he says to the wise and the foolish, he's saying I have a message that is for everyone. Everyone needs to hear the gospel message. I was uh, studying the passage and um, I, was, I was reminded that as we make this move, we need to be focused on people but we need to be convicted that what we are doing, uh, it has to be motivated, not from telling people what's right or wrong, but telling people about the love that God has for them. Since we have experienced the love of the Lord, we want other people to experience the love of the Lord also. So I was preparing my sermon. I came across a commentator who broke down John 3.16, and he, he broke it down this way. He says, for God, the greatest lover, so loved, which is the greatest degree, the world, which is the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believeth the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest object, should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference 
have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, which is the greatest possession. When you think about John 3.16, it is a reminder that God desires to use us to show his love. We, we often read John 3.16, but I also feel like we need to hear from John 3.17. It says, For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I hope and pray that as we, as we share the message of Jesus, that, that what people hear is not a message of condemnation, a message of hate, a message of judgment. I hope and pray that we preach in such a way where we communicate that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. So first we see the minister, then secondly we see the motivation, and then lastly we see the miracle. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In verse 16, the gospel is described as the power of God, not just a presentation of an idea. Uh, the last thing the world needs today is another idea. Uh, we live in a day and time where men and women have more education than they've ever had before, but we are not more moral, right? We live in a day and time where people have more money than they've ever had before, but as a culture, we're not any more generous. We live in a day and time where people have more connections than we've ever had before, but we're not any better at communication. When we view how the world operates today, it should be a reminder that you and I cannot do anything to save ourselves, and we cannot do anything to change ourselves. And that is why Paul says the gospel is the answer, because he's saying the gospel has power to change and to transform people, not just for eternity, but also presently. When we are around people uh, who are not of faith, it is easy to be ashamed of the gospel. When we are not around people who are in church, it is easy to take the exclusive claims of Christianity and be like, you know, you want to just kind of back off of the claims a little bit because it sounds, it can sound arrogant, it can sound erudite, it can sound like we're judging and coming off as pointing the finger. If you see it from that perspective, I want to encourage you. Rather than focus on people's response, I want you to focus on God's power. When we think about the gospel, when we think about God's love for us, when we consider God's sacrifice for us, when we ultimately reflect on God's plan for us, we can move past being ashamed because the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, it is the revelation of God's power. That God is able to move a person from death to life. That God is able to move a person from unbelief to belief. When you look at it, Paul really gives us three additional points that remind us of why we should never be ashamed of the gospel. First thing he says is we should never be ashamed of the gospel because, it's because of its origin. I've mentioned this already, but I want to say it again. The gospel's origin is from God. And we should never be ashamed of what God has given us. We should never be ashamed of what God has called us to. We should never be ashamed of God's plan for reaching the world. 
um, I, I came across an illustration that was really good this week. One commentator says that um, when he was growing up in high school, he loved being a hall monitor, especially being a monitor at the office. He says every time he was in the, he was a main hall monitor by, by the office, he says that he had opportunities to, to, uh, to deliver very important messages. He says he would love when the, the principal would come out to him and give him a message. And he would be able to go into a class and interrupt the teacher from teaching. He would be able to pull students out of class. He would be able to call people out. He would be able to deliver messages and no one could say anything to him because of the authority that came with his position. As believers, we should never be ashamed because of the origin of the message. Like what we are called to share is from God. It's not from a man. Secondly, we should not only see the origin, but also the operation of the gospel. When you look at it, it is the power of God. Uh, when you look at the text, uh, the, the people in Rome boasted um, based upon their own power. They boasted based upon their own accomplishes, accomplishments. But Paul says, we have a power, we have an authority, we have an opportunity for transformation that the world has never, ever seen. When you look at the text, it reminds me that Paul was convinced of God's power because he had seen God's power transform Ephesus. He had seen God's power transform Corinth. He had seen God's power transform Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica. But most importantly, he had seen how God's power transformed his life. When we understand how God has changed us, how God is shaping us, how God is growing us, what we are doing is we are sharing with others what God has done in us, for us, and through us. So we are not to be ashamed because of its origin, because of its operation, but lastly, because of its outcome. In the text, it says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The word salvation is carried, uh, carries a tremendous meaning. It literally means deliverance from harm. It means to escape a, uh, a person's wrath. To appreciate deliverance, we must be reminded of what we have been delivered from. When we place our faith in Christ, we are delivered from sin's penalty. Sin's penalty is separation from God for eternity. But when we place our faith in Christ, we have a relationship with God. But secondly, we are also, um, we are delivered or saved from sin's power. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit residing in you gives you the opportunity to live a life that is filled with God's spirit and ultimately that is pleasing to God. God not only saves us, but he equips us and he empowers us by his spirit. And we are also saved from sin's presence when we get to heaven. When we die, the Bible tells us that it is to be, to be absent from this present body is to be present with the Lord. And when we do that, we will ultimately be without sin because we will be with the Lord. One of the greatest truths about death in Christ is this. When a person dies in Christ, that person is more alive in heaven than they are on this earth because they are with God. When you die in Jesus, when you have a relationship with Christ, yes, your family may miss you. Yes, you are no longer able to talk to your kids and your loved ones, but here's the truth. Here's the ultimate truth about dying in Christ. We are alive because we are with God. We are alive because we are where 
the Lord created us to be. And that is why we rejoice over those who die in the Lord. You look at the text. The passage literally says, God's salvation is available to everyone that believes. God does not ask men or women to behave in order to be saved. God requests that we believe to be saved. God does not want you to get to a place in your life where you reach a certain standard or you uh, sin a whole lot less or you uh, go to church a certain number of times or you give a certain amount of money. Like God is not waiting on your performance. God is not waiting on you to have a certain, of, a certain level of behavior before you are saved. But the truth of the matter is God desires for you to believe and in believing you are moved from death to life. Um, I was reading Tony Evans this week and he had a really cool illustration on belief. It kind of resonated with me because I'm a former football player, football chaplain. He talked about belief and faith is kind of like a football on the football field. He says that you can put on the pads, you can go to the stadium, you can uh, do the right chance, you can have the cheerleaders, you can have the jumbotron on, you can have some popcorn, you can have all those things but you cannot have a game without a football. The football really matters most. When you think about it, the football is small. It could seem like it's insignificant, but the football determines the outcome of the game. A, a player is, det is determined onside or offside based upon where the football is placed. Um, a touchdown is determined based upon where the football is measured. Uh, a catch is determined based upon the placement of the football a field goal is determined based upon the placement of the football. It is amazing how the football may be small in light of the players and the field and the stadium, but the placement of the ball determines the outcome of the game. In our relationship with God, faith is like that ball. You can come to the stadium on Sunday. You can wear the right uniform. You can be on the crowd and you can give the right cheer. But without faith, you will never have a relationship with God. Here's the truth. We all have faith. The question is, where are you placing your faith? I'm pretty sure everybody here, when you sat down, you just sat down because you trusted that the seat was going to hold you up. P-Line's not here, so other than P-Line, I don't think there's a person here who would think about reaching up under the seat to make sure it's connected at the bottom. Like we all just sat down because we had faith that the seat was going to hold us up. All of us have faith. The question is, ultimately, where are you placing your faith? As my brother begins to play, I'm going to close this out this morning. I really do believe we have four very simple, simple applications for our sermon today. As, as we get ready for this move, we need to consider four essential questions. First question we need to consider is, where are we finding our identity? Is our identity in what we do, where we work, how many kids we have, our marital status, how much money we have, or is our identity in Christ? Ultimately, all those things change, but the one consistent in our lives is Christ. And I hope and pray that, that if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that your identity is there first. 
not in your race, not in your gender, not in your occupation, not in your 401k. I hope that your identity is in Christ as a servant of the Lord. Secondly, we need to consider as we make this move, what will be our motivation? Are we just moving to have a bigger church and more people? Are we motivated by expressing and showing the love of God? Are we motivated by the fact that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation where we are introducing those who are disconnected, unchurched, unconnected to Christ? And those who are believers, are we motivated to see them grow in their faith? Are we motivated to be in community with others so we are mutually encouraged in our faith? I hope that's our motivation because that is the kind of motivation that honors the Lord. Thirdly, we got to ask ourselves, are we being transformed by the gospel? All of us are being transformed by something, whether it's the Lord or our culture or our desires. We are all in the midst of transformation. I hope and pray that we are being transformed by the gospel. And lastly, and I'm done, when I think about the text, I think about the, the reality of what the pastor is communicating, I think it's a great time to give an invitation. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never gotten to a place in your life where you have believed, meaning that you've trusted what Christ has accomplished on the cross was for you. If you've never gotten to a place in your life where you believe that it should have been you on that cross, but God loves you so much that he took your place because he loves you. He took your place because he desires a relationship with you. If you've never made a public profession of your faith, I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. So with every head, head bowed, every eye closed, say, preacher, I've been to church before. I've been around the message of Christ. But today is the day that I want to publicly profess my belief in Jesus. I want to publicly admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I want to publicly ask the Lord into my life. If that's you this morning, I want you to lift up your eyes and look at me. It's me and you talking. don't have a relationship with Jesus and today is the day where you want to place your faith in Christ I want you to look at me thank you sister it's a little dark in here you can throw your hand up so I can see you we thank you for allowing us to be here this day. Lord, I, I be public. I just want to continue to preach the gospel. I want to continue to just share the simple message of Christ. I want to continue, no matter where we are, no matter what we do, to make sure that 
the gospel is the central message which we proclaim and which we live. God, I thank you that all of us are created in your image. And I thank you that some of us have placed our hope and our trust in you. God, for those of us who placed our faith and our hope in you, I pray that that faith would grow. God, I pray that our commitment to you would grow, that our, our love for you would grow, but also that our love and commitment to others would grow. That we would share about the transformation and the change, that we would share about what you are doing in our lives, and we would see what you desire to do through our lives. God, for those who are, who are not part of the family of faith, for those who have not placed their trust in you. I pray that they would know that they have an opportunity to do that. Doesn't have to be in a church. Doesn't have to be with the preacher. God, but I pray that you would continue to work on our lives and continue to move us um, to greater steps of faith. Thank you for my sister this morning who lifted up her eyes pray that she would know that you love her and that you care for her. And just from this pulpit, I'm going to ask her to repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Lord, I need you to save me. I need you to transform me. And I thank you that your word promises me that when I place my faith in you, that you place your spirit inside of me. God, thank you that I am saved. Now, Lord, help me grow. Lord, put me around people who would encourage me in my faith, who will walk alongside me. God, I thank you that your word promises me that you will never leave me and you will never forsake me. In Christ's name I pray. For our entire congregation, as we get ready to leave, God, I pray that you would give us all some divine appointments this week. Allow us to know that you have called us to be light. You called us to carry the message. God, deepen our conviction that we have something to share. God, deepen our commitment to being the light of Christ in the dark world. We love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.